All right, so this is the uh, fourth lesson in the series. So maybe by way of a background, they do build upon one another. So let me give a little highlight of what we've covered so far. In the first lesson, we went to the garden, to this beautiful created garden. It was not fully developed. This garden, as you can imagine, was soothing. It was beautiful. But it is not the blueprint of where we're going. It was the launching pad. In the first lesson, we learned that we are called to take dominion, to harvest, to dig in the earth, to take the raw materials and make something. And remember the trajectory we're on. We're going to a glorious city. We're not going back to the garden. We're going to the glorious city. In the garden, the gold and the diamonds and all the things were underground. In the city, they're above ground. They've been harvested. So in the last chapter of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, we learn that we are coming back to this recreated earth with our Lord and we will live forever. So that which we do now matters. Assuming it is done well and unto the Lord. In lesson two, <coughs> We were introduced to the second Adam. So, we know about the first Adam, where God created the world and came as his creation. But we were introduced to the second Adam. And when we see a second Adam, we think, hmm, there's another act of creation going on. And from the second Adam, remember he had wounds on his side, bloody wounds, from which came his bride, the church. He died on a cross. Peter calls it the tree of life. So we now partake of that tree which gave us life. The second Adam, namely Jesus, is the word of God. Remember, God spoke and it was. Well, this is the word. Jesus is also called the light. And providing us a life. So he He's the light and the life of which we now recreate the world. So this, this second Jesus, or sorry, this second Adam is now recreating the world. Being recreated, proof of this is we are called by Paul new creations. So the work of recreating, of new creating is happening. We are called the sons of glory. And all creation that was subject to death and the curse have been groaning for us to be revealed. And we have been called to put the world right. Remember the, the Christmas song we sing, Joy to the World, as far as the curse is found. Therefore will go uh, the glorious news of the gospel. Though we may be few in numbers at times, we are called to have a pro profound impact of this, on this world. We're salt and light. I know you look at this world and you think it is going to hell in a handbasket. Look at the world by faith. Believe God's promises. Take up your post. Remember that it is the meek and the humble and the contrite of heart who will inherit this world. The proud and the wicked are struck down and the humble and the weak Meek are raised up. So find yourself humbled before God. 
To successfully recreate this world, though, we need a blueprint. So men in the past have tried to recreate this world in their own image. It started very early on, the Tower of Babel. They built cities after their own name. As the psalmist says, they rose early, they stayed up late. But unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. As servants of God, we are called to baptize and disciple nations. By faith, no, we are called to disciple nations. We teach them how to build to the glory of God. So in our third lesson, last time we looked at Psalm 96, and we highlighted the key attributes of how we're to build. Remember, we were introduced to the concept there of truth, righteousness, and beauty. Beauty is often referred to in Scripture as glory. So, truth are those unalterable facts which are simply a reflection of God. Righteousness are those acts of God which flow from His character. As we perform anything that's righteous, we are only following his example. And then beauty is the framework, the style, the manner of which these righteous acts are performed. So let me give you an intersection of where truth, righteousness, and beauty, where they come together. So we say truthfully that all that we have are, is from the Lord. That's truth. Our righteous response is to give back to him. Now, we can give back to him either in an ugly manner or in a beautiful manner. We can either give with a grumbling heart or with a cheerful heart. So you can see, he's the Lord of all, we give back to him, and we do it with a cheerful heart. Truth, righteousness, and beauty intersecting. Consider another example of truth, righteousness, and beauty. We sing the Psalms, knowing that they are truthful. We are changed by what we sing. We bow in worship, we lift our hands in prayer, we remember our sins, we openly confess them. <clears throat> this is our righteous response. Consider how we do it beautifully. We sing on key, or we attempt to. We sing with a wonderful melody. We do it together. We do it in harmony. And the whole is more beautiful than any of the individual parts. So the blueprint is for all that we do, let's be guided by truth. Let's respond in a righteous manner. And let's do it in a beautiful way. The way to do most things in a beautiful way is with not a grumbling heart, but with a thankful heart. So, yet if one of those elements is missing, truth, righteousness, or beauty, then we are thinking uh, the whole house falls apart. Now with this as a, as a background, it's time for a reality check. Time to survey the landscape to understand the situation and the work before us. I can think of nothing better than the context of the book of Ezra for our framework especially with regard to our current trends. So, what led up to the book of Ezra? The nation of Israel had been established under King David. It was vibrant, it was strong, it was expanding. But, over the next 400 years, David's 
sons and grandsons and great-grandsons were kings, the descendants of David, and they ruled. But they stopped serving the triune God. They served other gods. Finally, God sent something to discipline them with, a spanking stick. And it was a big one. He sent the Babylonians to bring judgment upon them. He took, the Babylonians took the Israelites off into captivity. If you're all familiar with uh, something from U.S. history called the Trail of Tears, the uh, Cherokee Indians were marched from north of the Carolinas to Oklahoma, and one can only imagine how many died. I'm sure this march into exile by the Babylonians was something similar. Seventy years later, a small group of Jews return to Jerusalem and they find the city in absolute ruins. Their historic foundations, their boundaries, their institutions are destroyed. The walls have been torn down, the place had been looted. Our particular culture is being destroyed at every turn. So let us learn from the Israelites of old on how to find out of how we might rebuild. So now, if you have Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, I'm going to read from there. And then what I'll do is, if you keep it open, I'll go back to it again, and we'll uh, use this as our base, our foundation to build from. So Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of these countries, of those countries, they set the altar on its base, they offered burnt offerings on it, to the Lord both morning and evening burnt offerings. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered regular burnt offerings, and those for new moons, and those appointed for feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. And those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons, the carpenters, and food and drinks, to all, and oil to all the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon. To the, sea of, to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. <clears throat> Thus ends the reading of God's word. So if you will, let's go back, verse by verse, and extract some nuggets. In verse 1, those who, res- those who were <clears throat> exiled returned to Judah. They gathered as one man. They were unified. They had a common purpose, and this is powerful. How powerful is this? In general, 
I would say we all like to be a part of something. We like to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Consider what attracts the world today, the people of the world today. Sports teams. Rooting for the, uh, your favorite sport teams, being on their sport teams, living in a neighborhood, political causes, hobbies. All of these may unite for a time. But it is only the worship of God that unites us to one another and this for eternity. Enjoy your clubs, enjoy your sports teams, enjoy your hobbies, but make the worship of God your passion, your priority, and so be unified to your brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 2, we find that they return to this devastated city and consider the first thing that they do. The very first thing that they did, they established the worship of God. It says, they arose and built an altar to the God of Israel. Remember, there's no temple, there's no roof covering their head, there's no walls, but they put, they set the worship of God in place. We will see this very simple act, how profound it was, and how impactful. Therefore, if you see the devastated world around you, what is the first thing you can do? You could start a blog. You could throw yourself into politics. You could start a Christian school. All good things, I suppose. But the first thing God calls us to do is right worship of him and to call others to join us. This worship helps us establish a clear vision for building in our heart and in the hearts of others. Worship is the engine that unites it recreates, it recreates us and it drives change. Look at verse 3. On this primitive altar, they are giving their offering, namely their sin and grain offering. So they offer their sin offering. They are confessing that they are sinners, duly deserving the wrath and curse of God. Yet God accepts their offering which are to be given from a humble and contrite heart. These offerings were prescribed by Moses. They were giving their grain offering. And consider the faith that was behind that. These refugees had just returned, right? And they are acknowledging that all that they have is a gift from him. Imagine the scenario. They've just returned from Babylon. They have come to Jerusalem, which is in ruins. And let's put it in context. All the Walmarts, all the Kroger's and all the Aldi's, all of the Aldi stores are closed. All right? And Lindsay, I did not work in there, the Dollar General, which I know you'd be happy with, right? So, but they're all closed until further notice. Yet these people take from their reserves, from their savings, their grain, and they give to God. They give their grain... For their offering, they were testifying that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by and on the word of God. They were trusting in God that their future harvests, yet months out, would come in and be the provision for them and their family. So, verse 3, we get a glimpse of what's going on in their minds and hearts. It says they feared God, or sorry, they feared the people around them. As they worship God, and they, we know that as they worship God, they acted differently. 
the people around them would take notice, and not always in a pleasant manner. As these Israelites worshipped God, they did not worship the idols around them of the people. God gave them strength to carry on, even though many of them would see this worship of God, of the triune God, as a declaration of war. How dare you not obey the idols of the age? You can see the fear. And now if you start to put it in the context, there are plenty, of us, plenty around us that are telling us, how dare you not obey the idols of our age? Verse 3 and 4. Check to see how their life is framed by the worship of God. All right? It provided a life-giving structure in the morning and in the evening. Guess what they did? They gave thanks. They gave their offering. God ordered their days. This was, their bl- there was, this was the blueprint to follow. Every week, the Israelites would learn to rest in God's presence. They worked six days, and the seventh they rested and worshiped God. So they had morning and evening offerings. They had a pattern to their weekly lives. Then the Israelites, we are told, celebrated the new moon feasts, rejoicing and celebrating in God's goodness every 28 days. So God ordered their days, their weeks, and now their months. The Israelites then, we're told, celebrated the various feasts throughout the year. The Passover, the the Feast of First Fruits, or what we call the Pentecost. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of the Final Harvest, the Day of Atonement. (coughs) So in the midst of this world that was falling apart, they were learning to rejoice in in, in the God of heaven with a thankful heart. These, these feasts, which happen approximately every three months, set their year in order. Their day is set in order, their week, their month, and now their years are set in order. The worship of God has brought order to their day, their week, their month, and their year. Do you understand now the importance of worship? Why it should be our first priority. Of all the activities you find yourself engaged, worship is something we do for the rest of eternity. So let's learn on this earth to do it well. The worship of God brings orders to us as individuals, but more importantly to our family, to cities, and to nations. We live in a time when there are those busy tearing down. So what's our response? What are we to do? While others are tearing down statues, corrupting institutions of learning with uh, CRT theory, or critical race theories with evolution, whatever other foolishness, calling for the defunding of the police, we could play conservatives and tell them to please stop, to wait, to beseech them to hold on to the past. We could do that. We could be good conservatives. But the strategy of conserving or of being a conservative is not effective. I said it out loud. Hopefully you all can can digest it. Instead of protecting our bacon, we are called to storm the very gates of hell. This is not a defensive posture of conserving. This is an offensive strategy. We are called to fight. We are called to take the battle to them. The answer is found in how we worship. 
and all the subsequent actions that flow from vigorous worship. To begin, to start, we learn to sing the Psalms, the war chants of God. We learn to sing the Psalms or the war chants of God. If you hear anything tonight, hear this. Sing the Psalms with your family. Hymns I love. I'll sing those too, but the the Psalms set the pattern, and the, and the hymns should rise up to that. Fill your and your children's imagination with the battles of old, of how God victoriously slew the giants, and how his kingdom advanced, how when they were faced with extreme number, or they had no advantage, God rescued them. Learn from the biblical history, and you will learn God's ways, and this will help you interpret the events of today. The Israelites of old saw the world corrupted and God was tearing it down. But why? Why was God allowing it to be torn down? As I said earlier, God routinely shakes the world. And when he shakes it, he topples idols, false gods of which we cling to. There are many people who want to return to simpler times. Sorry, it's probably just a few of us in the room from the 60s, right, that remember the time of Ozzie and Harriet. Believe it or not, prayer was said in schools, government schools. Children were mostly respectful. Families ate together. And in the 60s, this was seen as the golden era. I characterize this as a time when people were seeking the American way. I don't know exactly what it meant. But Superman was there to protect it and preserve it the American way. I say this time, this golden age of which many want to go back to, was a time filled with pernicious idols. What are the idols? It was the idol of the perfect family. It was, we were called to idolize college. Send your children to college so they can get a good degree. So they can get a good job, so they can join a good corporation, so they can live in the perfect neighborhood and have perfect children. For those of us that are old enough, you'll remember Walter Cronkite, the newscaster. He was the prophet of the age. He was telling us how to interpret the events of the world without the Bible. And the U.S. government was seen as good, they could do no wrong, and the Soviets were the bad guys. God shook this world, and he's still shaking this world. The idol of the perfect family, those that were seeking the perfect family, they gave birth and raised hippies. Those hippies told us about free love, legalized abortion, and no-fault divorce. The colleges that promised prosperity, once we had a degree, have been once the degree had been granted, are now training grounds for God-haters. The corporations that promise lifetime employment and prosperity all of our days have been bought and sold every five years by the wolves of Wall Street and are now concerned about a quick profit more than serving their customers. The newscasters that filled Walter Cronkite's shoes still want to be the prophets of the age. They still want to interpret the world. They want to tell us how to think and they want to tell us how to act. And now we're starting to realize, hopefully, 
how deeply they're drinking from liberal and anti-God agenda. How about the government apparatus that we saw as benevolent? Now, think about who they're turning against. The IRS is sent to audit those who support minimum taxes, like members of the Tea Party. The Department of Occupation, Health, and Safety now have the task to force us to undergo certain injections. The FBI is called out to contend with parents who disagree with critical race theory. For surely these parents are domestic terrorists. What men may mean for our harm, God is using for good. Rejoice. Don't wring your hands. God is indeed shaking the world. So let go of these idols. Instead of looking back like Lot's wife to, I want to go back to the 60s, forget it. Look forward. Build something that is enduring, untainted, righteous, and lovely, like the Israelites. So let's think of a few applications. So like the Israelites of old, we see a decaying and crumbling world. Lean into it. Lean into what God is doing. Rejoice. And confess the judgments of God are good and right. Instead of wringing your hands, professing that the world is ending, consider some of the applications given to us by the returning Israelites of which Ezra records. Like the Israelites of old, make worship, Sunday morning worship, your highest priority. Order your life so that you can make it to Sunday morning worship. Make your preparations before Sunday so that you can be there on time and ready to worship. Train your children during the week in family worship so they can sit for an hour or more, that they can obediently learn to listen, develop a love for singing, put away your lame excuses, and join every week for worship to be one with the body of Christ like they were one. <clears throat> this will set your life in motion and provide critical order for you and for your family for generations. Next, let that which happens on Sunday morning be the blueprint for the rest of your life. Let it spill over into your daily routine. Let it shape and set a beautiful order to your life. Start by working one day, sorry, resting one day, working six days, as we're called to do, your weeks are set into order. Confess Jesus as Lord on Sunday. So come into worship and we confess Jesus as Lord. Now let it spill over into your daily life. Confess him as Lord of your home, of your work, of your hobbies, of your free time. On Sunday morning, if we have offended our neighbor, uh, we confess our sins, right? Therefore, during the week, confess your sins to your neighbor. Guess who the neighbors are you are likely to offend? Those living in your own house. They are also your neighbor. As God has been your provision, and on Sunday morning you give your tithes and offerings, give generously to others through the week. Once a week, God offers you hospitality. He says, come into my house. He invites you in, and you enjoy. Learn to be godly. Learn to offer other hospitality. Learn to meet the, uh, the needs of your neighbors. Learn to bless others. 
At the, at the uh, center of this Sunday morning worship that sets our life in order, we open his word. We are broken. And then, we are, then he rearranges our lives. So men, Paul tells Timothy, right, that men are to rule their house well. So let the word of God shape your thoughts and attitudes. Men, let this word be at the center of your family's lives. Read it regularly and apply it to the activities in the home. And as the world is falling apart, all around us, you see God's enemies ascending to high places. Remember, God set a table for you. Every Sunday morning, he sets a table for you. Even as we read from, a, even as we sang from Psalm 23, it's a feast. The cup overflows, the fare, the food is nourishing. This is what we call the Lord's Supper. Take heart every Sunday, that in the middle of the battle that's raging all around us, as we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we're celebrating. We're celebrating. We're rejoicing. We know that God is in control and he's working things wonderfully. Wait and be patient. Eat and rejoice. That's what happens on Sunday morning. Let that shape your days. Follow God's, follow God's pattern. Organize your life such that the family meal, family supper, is the highlight of your day. A daily separation of God's celebration of God's goodness. Put aside the extracurricular activities, the sports events, the other clubs, Boy Scouts, whatever it is, if it's an excuse for not having a family meal. Then make the family meal not only a time of ingesting calories, of grabbing and going, instead consecrate the time. Set the table with nice plates, light some candles. Make a meal that's tasty, and be prepared to spend more than 10 minutes. Fellowship, rejoice, enjoy one another, celebrate, testify that God is good. And as this meal becomes a place of grand celebrations, invite others to join you and let them see that the Lord is good. I believe that this tangible display of celebration at the family meal does more to speak of the gospel than 10,000 gospel tracts. So make it happen. Like Sunday morning worship, may your life be saturated with singing. Singing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Fill your house with singing. By the way, when you sing, it's hard to grumble. It's hard to grumble. And by the way... Um, Young ones and old ones, we're all given to grumbling, aren't you? So sing at meals. Sing before you go to bed. Sing and make melody in your heart as you're doing your chores. <clears throat> your children can learn to sing. I know it because I've heard many of them in my own house sing the shark song, right? <laughs> I know that they can master God's psalms. It takes time to learn it, but it's time well spent. Teach them gymnastics. Teach them how to throw a softball, a football, shoot a basketball. Teach them how to ride a bike. But more importantly, teach them how music. How to read music, how to play an instrument, how to sing. Sporting events are fun. They have good practical purposes, but they'll last for a decade or two or three. But the ability to sing, a lifetime and on to eternity. Like the Israelites of old, returning from Babylon, Babylonian captivity, our world is in tatters. Look around. You may find yourself fearful, 
What is happening? Where is this going? Unite with other Christians and make the worship of God your top priority. As worship becomes our top priority, then it changes our lives. The lives of our children, the lives of our family, the lives of nations. This is work, but lean into it and rejoice. Men, rule your households well and bring order. As you bring order, with your wife assisting you, you will soon find, you will soon find how she is making things truly beautiful. By faith, take up this world and so change the world. Call others to join, and then after a generation of faithfulness, look back and give God the glory. Stop for comments or questions. <clears throat> By the way, I had to do Dave's job tonight. <laughs>